0: Every
1: Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. talk. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 4th of July, and a warm welcome to my podcast, Peter Lewis's Money Talk. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk, and thank you for making it one of the most listened-to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's factory activity grew more slowly in June, a private sector survey showed on Monday. The Kaishin China general manufacturing PMI fell to 50.5 in June from 50.9 in the prior month, but above market consensus of 50.2. The latest print was the second straight month of growth in factory activity, with output growth, though, slowing from May's 11-month high. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will travel to Beijing for a four-day visit starting Thursday to meet with senior Chinese officials. The Treasury said Ms. Yellen is expected to discuss a number of macroeconomic and financial issues, as well as how the U.S. and China can responsibly manage our relationship, communicate directly about areas of concern, and work together to address global challenges. However, a senior Biden administration official said they don't expect significant breakthroughs during Ms. Yellen's trip. Ahead of that trip, China said yesterday it's restricting exports of products and materials containing gallium and germanium, metals that are vital in semiconductors, 5G base stations and solar panels. A brief statement from China's Ministry of Commerce yesterday said the rule would take effect from August the 1st to safeguard national security. Exporters of the two metals will need to apply for licenses and report details of the overseas buyers to the ministry if they want to ship them out of the country, according to the statement. Hong Kong's retail sales rose 18.4% in May from a year earlier in the sixth consecutive month of growth, thanks to the revival of inbound tourism and positive consumption sentiment, which should support growth in the coming months, the government said on Monday. The figure compared with a revised 14.9% rise in April and 40.8% growth in March. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Allcroft, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com.
2: Peter Lewis is Money
1: Talk. On Wall Street Monday, stocks struggled to build on a rally that saw the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite record its best first half of the year since 1983, gaining almost 32% over the period. Optimism was curbed after the release of the ISM Manufacturing Index, which fell to its lowest level in three years and renewed investors' concerns over U.S. economic growth. In a half-day of trading, ahead of the Independence Day holiday today, the S&P 500 climbed 0.1% to end at 4456 The Dow added just 11 points, or under 0.1%, to finish at 34,418. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.2% to 13,817. The Nasdaq was boosted by shares of Tesla, which rose almost seven percent after the electric car maker announced that deliveries in the second quarter jumped to a record and were 83 percent higher than the same period last year. And shares of electric vehicle maker Rivian surged over 17 percent after it reported better than expected sales. Apple finished 0.08 percent lower after Friday becoming the first company to close with a market capitalization above three trillion U.S. dollars. Asian markets were boosted Monday by news that Janet Yellen will visit Beijing this week and against a backdrop of slowing private sector activity in China, Japan and South Korea. Japan's Nikkei 225 jumped 1.7% higher after closing out the first half as Asia's best performing markets, with gains of 27.2%. In Australia, the ASX 200 gained 0.6% as investors waited for the Reserve Bank of Australia's rate decision, which is due later this morning. South Korea's Cosby climbed 1.5%. Chinese markets were all higher. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index led gains in the region, rising 390 points, or 2.1% to 19,307 The Hang Seng tech index surged 3.7% and mainland China markets were higher. The Shanghai Composite gained 1.3% to 3,244. And more electric vehicle news. China's electric vehicle makers surged after both Tesla and BYD reported record sales. BYD, which is the world's biggest electric vehicle maker, sold more than a quarter of a million units in June, beating the record it set just a month earlier. In the first half of 2023, BYD sold 1.26 million vehicles. That's almost double the figure from a year ago. And Li Auto, Xpeng and NIO also reported a jump in deliveries on Saturday. Shares of BYD climbed 4.5% in Hong Kong, while Xpeng jumped 16.5%. And futures markets are pointing to declines in Japan and Hong Kong this morning at the open. The Hang Seng Index projected to drop around 60 points. That's a third of a percent. And you can get more details on the latest market movements. Go and have a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
3: Peter Lewis's
1: Money Talk. Time to welcome our Tuesday morning guests. Very good morning to Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. Good morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter, and a happy Independence
3: Day for the Americans that are listening.
1: Uh, Yep, happy Independence Day to all Americans and anyone else who wants to join in with the celebrations. We have also with us Dr Richard Harris. Now, I can call Richard Harris the good doctor, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and congratulations on your recent elevation.
0: Well, that's very kind, Peter. I was uh, six foot six before I started. Now I've lost about a foot in height.
1: (laughs) It's the wrong way yeah, round. round. It's the round. width that you're supposed to lose. <laughs> and over somewhere in, uh, in America, I believe, sort of sitting uh, maybe outside of Starbucks down in, is it in Tennessee, Barry? And, uh, we no, wish...
2: sir, it is in the great state of New Jersey. Oh, in New Jersey. On my way from New York back to D.C.
1: Okay, well, well, this is Barry Wood, of course, our international economics correspondent, and we wish you a very happy Independence Day for tomorrow.
2: Thank you very much. And may I just add, all four of us who are speaking may have English names, but if you look at our forebears, I think only three of us were really involved in one side, and the ancestors of the other one is celebrating Independence Day. So thank you very much. I'm proud of my ancestry and proud that we got our independence.
3: We were glad to get rid of you, actually. (laughs) um, I I wasn't going to mention that until now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But since Brexit, we're going to come and join you, Barry, I think. That's the idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: All right, well, let's kick off. Well, let's kick off in the United States because Janet Yellen, US Treasury Secretary, is going to travel to Beijing for a four-day visit starting on Thursday to meet with senior Chinese officials. That was announced yesterday. Uh, the US Treasury said Yellen Yellen's expected to discuss a number of macroeconomic and financial issues, as well as how the US and China can responsibly manage our relationship, communicate directly about areas of concerns and work together to address global challenges. The bar, however, is rather low. A senior administration official said they don't expect any significant breakthroughs during this trip. So, Barry, why is she going? Why is America so keen uh, to send its officials over to China when China isn't particularly keen to have them, is it, really? Although it does um, rather reluctantly agree to these meetings.
2: Yes. Well, I think, Peter, uh, the American perspective is you've got to keep the relationship alive. And you've got to keep the dialogue alive. And there are many things that a Treasury Secretary can talk about with her Chinese counterpart, not least of which would be digital currencies, not least of which would be uh, the move away from the dollar in international trade, and, of course, some of the global international issues like what's going to happen at the G20 meeting, which is coming up in India shortly. So I think they've got a lot to talk about. And the mere fact that there has been no real dialogue between the Treasury and the Chinese finance ministry reveals just how important the relationship is. Just for a reference point, do you remember back when Hank Paulson was Treasury Secretary? Mm. That was before Um, that was before Donald Trump.
1: That was a time of the global financial crisis, wasn't it? They
2: were meeting almost all the time and. Paulson was going to China, it seemed, almost every two months. So that shows how down the relationship went, despite the fact that trade relations between the two countries, the volume of trade is at a record high.
1: But those days of cooperation have probably gone forever, haven't they? Well, certainly for a long time. That level of cooperation and, and dialogue between the U.S. and China seems um, a far, far distant prospect.
3: Um, well, I'm not so sure, Peter, because I think that there's, you know, the first, first of all, Janet Yellen's visit has been well flagged. Uh, there's be, there have been rumours out in the market for at least the last uh, month that she was going to go. Um, she has been um, making a number of speeches in the U.S., all rather positive, About continued dialogue between the U.S. and China, so I think it's only right that uh, she should be going, especially before probably there is going to be a meeting at some point in the next three months between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. Mm. So I think that you know, first of all, this is a very positive. Um, issues. Secondly, um, yes, we don't expect her to come up with any great breakthroughs, but that's not what's expected from this. It's, it's a dialogue. It's to continue talking and it's to keep the airwaves open. Um, yes, there are um, massive two-way trades between the US and China and there are very substantial financial links between US and China. And if you don't talk about them and you don't discuss them, you don't get anywhere without without that. And, and I think this is this should be regarded as enormously positive in terms of perpetuating um, the relationship and and going towards uh, or some way towards improving it.
0: I
1: suppose, Richard. Yeah, there I think... Sorry, Richard. Yeah,
0: no. Yes, I've thought for you know quite a while that. We can all think of scenarios where there would be a total breakdown in relations between the U.S. and China. I don't think we're anywhere near there. Yes, we've had uh, issues with balloons. We've um, uh, not surprisingly had issues with export of uh, potential uh, equipment that could be used for potential military uses. And this is happening on the Chinese side, too, where they're looking at reducing exports uh, for chip manufacture. You know, this sort of stuff is, is happening. Both sides clearly don't see eye to eye on most issues. But the key thing is this is the major trading partnership in the world. America needs China. China needs America. And I think for all but the most serious of political issues... Uh, that that will remain. Trade will remain even while the politicians above continue to squabble.
1: And presumably there's some important financial issues that they could discuss. You know, they can keep away from some of the contentious issues, but things like the divergent mon- monetary policies, for example, between the U.S. and China. We've got the U.S. raising rates. We've got China cutting rates. Um, that, that's, a, that's an issue in itself, isn't it, that they need to really talk about?
0: Uh, um, I think in, in, in terms of that, It's very difficult for countries to tell another country what to do in terms of its policies. I mean, China has had a surprisingly slow recovery out of COVID. It does need to stimulate. The U.S., on the other hand, you know, we've got booming employment. We've got the economy doing extremely well, despite some serious narratives about interest rates rising and uh, inflation coming in. So it's very difficult, I think, for them to talk about that. I think more likely they're likely to talk about things like financial regulation, uh, financial crime, uh, cyber currencies, these more supranational things on which they can agree on. So there's plenty of stuff to agree on, I think, in other financial aspects, but not in monetary policy.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that, Richard. Um, But I I would also say that uh, it's the opening up of the China market for financial companies that is also going to be very high on their agenda, I'm sure. Um, we now have a number of uh, fund management groups, for example, that have got a full license, but they're not getting anything like the volume of trade that they expected in terms of their funds, um, and because there are still far too many restrictions. And bear in mind that you know China has got a massive investment market nowadays. It's nearly $20 trillion in size and yet 99% or more of it is invested into Chinese securities. Um, now, the foreign firms can also manage Chinese securities, but obviously one of the more attractive aspects would be if they were allowed to manage foreign securities for mainland investors. And, and that's just not happened yet in any great volume. Uh, there are restricted, uh, um, very restricted schemes, but this, this is not the way forward. So I, I, my guess is that that could be on, on the agenda as well, Barry. I know. Stuart, ch- wasn't it,
2: Stewart? Was, wasn't that the case that a couple of years ago, that with, with considerable fanfare, the Chinese were opening up their fund industry to foreigners? But you're suggesting it just hasn't worked out the way that was hoped for.
3: Yes, um, you know, the likes of Blackrock and uh, others have uh, have been in China for quite a long time. Um, Fidelity, for example, has had an office in China for more than 20 years. But they have now got licenses to become uh, fully-fledged fund managers, but they're only allowed to offer to the retail investor um, domestic products that are also invested into Chinese securities, uh, and that's in competition to the 120 um, other mainland firms already doing that in in the retail space. So, you know, clearly that's not where their major skill is. Their major skill will be in offering um, investment into global securities markets. But that's currently not allowed. Mm. It, it's, it, it is something that China will probably get to eventually but uh, the sooner it does so the better as far as these global firms are concerned because uh, uh, and uh, going back to the point that i was making earlier where those global firms have already set up and have started offering funds they've not raised as much money as they expected what what often happens is that they might raise um a billion or so and then lose half of it within the first six months um, and that's that's not an ideal way of managing money, frankly. Um, it doesn't help to get better returns either for the underlying investments if, you, if you've got such turnover of, of money coming in and going out. So these are things that are, are potentially on the agenda. They have been talked about um, on multiple occasions in the past. You're right, it was two or three years ago that there was a, a lot of pressure put on and 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 the very, very slow process of of awarding a license um, was moved along um, and and this year last year, and this year, we have seen those licenses finally come to fruition.
1: Barry, just hours after this uh, visit was announced, Janet Yellen's visit, the Ministry of Commerce in China said it's going to impose export controls on gallium and germanium. Now, these are the two key metals used in the production of semiconductors. And and China is the world's biggest exporter um, of both those metals. Presumably, this is retaliation, Barry, for for, uh, the U.S.'s um, export controls on semiconductors and technology um, to China. This is a sort of tit-for-tat retaliation. But it sounds like it could be quite problematic for the the U.S. and and the West.
2: Yeah, of course it is. I'm sure that Janet Yellen is going to say, oh, well, that's the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, who will have to deal with that issue. But clearly this is tit-for-tat. And it shows that the relationship may at least be functioning, but there are severe problems.
0: I think the thing with this is that it's it's maybe a shot across the bows, but a lot of these metals are available elsewhere. Often, um, China can produce them cheaply and in volume. But I don't think we're going to see the kind of restrictions that we might have been concerned about, say, with rare earths, um, other rare earths, a little while ago, or even with restrictions on oil, say, in the Middle East. Um, So, yes, it's important, but it's more shot across the bows rather than I think anything um, that will really impact the markets.
1: China's the world's largest producer of these two elements. Apparently, um, it produces more than 95% of the global gallium output and 67% of germanium um, production. Um, It it could presumably engineer a bit of a squeeze, couldn't it, on on some of the other, uh, the world's sort of semiconductor manufacturers.
0: Well, perhaps short term, but you, you know what tends to happen is as prices rise, you get more production, um, mm-hmm. and there are the, the, these metals are not particularly difficult to find. Um, it's really just a, uh, a case of, of changing the supply chain. But I think there's maybe a bigger point here that while we're seeing export restrictions in various things, both in finished products and in raw materials, we are likely to see substitutions happen. And supply chains become a lot less concentrated than they were in the past, as people feel that maybe they're too dependent on one supplier. So it makes maybe the world economy less efficient, but perhaps a little bit more robust.
3: I assume that these two metals are not used in the semiconductors that China reckons it's short of. I guess they,
0: they can produce them for themselves
3: yes, but they, but they can't produce the semiconductors that they want half the time and they're, they're relying on production elsewhere. So if, if there's a restriction of the exports of these, these probably are not the ones that are used in the semiconductors that China needs.
1: Presumably, the significance of this is that it means it's another supply chain, doesn't it? That's got to be rerouted away from China. You know, yeah. other sources have got to be supplied. It's more um, just another sign of the fragmentation of global markets and global supply chains.
3: Yeah. On, on the other hand, it could be, I mean, presumably it's not just to the US, but also to uh, Korea and Taiwan that the supply will be restricted um, but it could be also, for all we know, because it's very difficult to get transparency and information, but they could be running out of these metals.
0: Well, the other thing, too, is that, you know, world trade in these things is extremely leaky. You know, we know that uh, Russian oil is is leaking out all over the place. I have no doubt that there will be various middlemen who will be dealing in these, um, these commodities before too long and making them available uh, as necessary.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about, uh, Barry, some U.S. data um, that, that came out uh, yesterday. The ISM manufacturing um, index dropped to the lowest level in three years. The ISM PMI fell to 46 in June from 46.9 in May. That We're seeing more and more signs, aren't we, that finally this sort of like, what, 15 months of interest rate rises is starting to slow the U.S. economy.
2: Well, there's too many people listening to Stuart Allcroft, who said the Americans have a not very bright future in manufacturing. But it's true that we, <laughs> we are a declining uh, manufacturing power. I, I don't particularly think that's a significant data point. I think much more important is the barometer of the United States stock market, which, as you said at the top of this program, Peter, is having its best first six months of the year in a very long time. So I think there's a lot of optimism. You could also point to the fact that consumer confidence is very high. So the U.S. Mm -hmm. consumer, as we find on this independence holiday in the States, everybody seems to have enough money to travel. Uh, That doesn't uh, suggest that they're worried about the future and squirreling their money away they're spending. So, yes, manufacturing is down. But you could say, is that really that significant?
1: This data, Stuart, vindicates your uh, your arguments to say that, that U.S. manufacturing no, Barry, is in decline.
3: Put, that Barry put me in my place quite clearly.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go on, fighting for it. So,
1: yeah. so so, Richard, what about this, uh, this new, um, highs that we're seeing in, um, in the NASDAQ or this extraordinary performance that we're seeing in US stocks and the extraordinary underperformance, um, that we're seeing in Chinese stocks as well, which everyone seems to think that, well, certainly that I've been talking to is going to continue, um, in the, in the second half of the year. But, um, your, your studies on, on financial economics may suggest otherwise.
0: Well, you you know, it's very tempting, isn't it, for analysts just to draw a straight line from where things have been going. Um, uh, My feeling is that we've seen uh, global markets do extremely well, be it U.S., be it Europe. Um, They've done very, very well. I'm a little bit concerned now because we've had this bull market since, say, the the beginning of October last year. And... We've seen an enormous rise since then, you, you know, you're looking at 25%, 30%, these kind of uh, increases. Most recently we've seen a very sharp increase because of the artificial intelligence narrative that's been going around. And I'm always suspicious when you see a bull market and then it starts to accelerate, very often they accelerate near the end, just before another event happens, another piece of news comes in and the markets go off. So. I would say that if I'm looking at scenarios and my base case scenario at the moment, it would be that we're more likely to see Western markets come off and lose some of those gains, maybe quite sharply. And we're likely to see the Chinese market perhaps tread water. So, in effect, you might say that the Chinese market is likely to outperform, say, over the next quarter, partly because it's been so weak. I mean, if you're looking at Hong Kong at the moment, which basically is almost an option on China, uh, it's by some way, the worst of the major markets in terms of its performance, but that also means that if global markets fall sharply, Hong Kong will probably be quite defensive. The bottom line for that is it's too late to sell.
1: But it's too late to you know, buy as too well, late isn't to it? Sell
3: if you're making a profit. Um, yes. It depends on when you went into the market. But uh, it's also if you if you say it's too late to sell, you've also got to think about what's the opposite of that. You're not going to buy at these levels in many of these markets. I think uh, it, it's very clear that it's, it, it's a very difficult market to predict at this point.
0: It, it, uh, you mean the markets globally or just Hong Kong?
3: well Hong no, Hong Kong I think is different because it is uh, entirely dependent on China China has uh, gone down as you as you rightly pointed out um, and China is struggling as a market we uh, you know we see properties struggling we see other aspects of the China market struggling and um, you know the, the reality is that China is not moving at the same rate as others it seems to be almost ca- contracyclical to the US market these days and I think that might be an indicator that we should be looking at.
0: It's (laughs) almost a crisis of confidence in China I think you know the 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 COVID lasted for so long people don't really seem to be willing to stick their necks out um, in a way that that people are throwing caution to the wind I think uh, elsewhere. Um, Yeah so so, you
3: know I'd, I'd look at it another way China has not had the benefit of foreign investment going into the securities markets. And I think that uh, you know, I'd be interested to know if Barry's seeing any any signs of that, because you know, it's still there's a struggle going on. I, I'm, I'm by the way, I am hearing that uh, there are institution institutional investors sort of beginning to do their due diligence on China, but not necessarily put their money in.
1: They're very underweight at the moment, aren't they, foreign institutional investors yeah. on, on China? which is, well, in- The
0: interesting thing is that at this stage of the cycle, people still seem to have lots of money. You know, as Barry is saying, people are, uh, are spending in the US. There's cash around to invest. Clearly, the bull market we've seen in the last uh, half year uh, indicates people have money to, to put to use. And that's not a usual thing uh, when you sort of see interest rates going up and inflation going up. Yeah, yeah.
2: I would simply add that uh, I I do think there's a a, a tremendous volume of American investment that is waiting to get into China. And they will applaud, those investors will applaud Janet Yellen going to China. Peter, you said at the top that uh, it was Ms. Yellen who wants the, the visit. I think that's true. However, she will come under attack from probably Republicans and Democrats for even going there. And, uh, you know, it was in some doubt because the the president made a rather uh, inopportune remark about uh, the Chinese leader, and yet it goes forward. And uh, and, and just one thing to go back to the Janet Yellen visit, she'll certainly want to talk to the Chinese about buying all that Russian oil at a discount because she was the principal advocate of putting a cap uh, on how much could be bought and, of course, encouraging everyone to stop buying. So there's lots to talk about.
1: Could this be if there was an improvement in the geopolitical tensions somehow from this visit or Gina Raimondo's visit when she goes to China? Could that be the catalyst that sparks foreign investors going back into China and then finally the Chinese market outperforming?
2: It could be. It could be. But I think it is very difficult. You know, you've seen, for example, that um, uh, BlackRock is backing away from the ESG thing because of public opposition here in the States. And I think they have to be very careful about being too public. And of course, you can't really hide it about being into the Chinese market. But there's no doubt there is so much investment money that wants to get into the China market. And they probably would like a signal from Janet Yellen, but they won't get it because uh, she'll keep her head down and, and simply say we were Doing business uh, in a in a very you know productive manner on climate things that are relatively non-controversial. It is still very controversial for companies to be in China, whether investment capital or private investment in plant and equipment. For example, there is a lot of movement out of China uh, of of supply chain people wanting to get into Vietnam, other places because they're under so much pressure to de-risk as we now say, about their involvement in the Chinese economy.
0: But foreigners are not going to turn the Chinese economy around. Foreign investment is not going to do it. It might help on the margin. It has to come from the Chinese economy itself, from the real estate sector, from the manufacturing sector, uh, from consumers domestically. That's where we're going to see the Chinese growth. When that picks up, then I think the Chinese economy will do well. But until it picks up, I think we're going to see uh, things in the doldrum and, and maybe a crisis of confidence.
3: Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you, Richard, um, surprisingly. Um, <laughs>
0: what do you mean? We always <laughs> agree.
3: <laughs> yeah, but no, it, it does. It, it's an internal thing, first of all. And the foreigners will only come in after we've started to see a, a significant uh, uptick in China. Um, and the foreigners are not just those from the U.S., it's from Europe, it's from Japan, Australia as well. So, um, uh, and, and we'll benefit from that in Hong Kong, I think, a lot. Uh, we might actually see Hong Kong move ahead before the rest of China because of the availability of the Hong Kong market and um, uh, once we can get past our own internal problems as well.
1: What sort of stimulus would you like to see? A lot of investors waiting for stimulus. They're just saying, bring me the stimulus. But what, what exactly would the stimulus look like that would actually help here?
3: Big stick. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to say. You know, China is already reducing interest rates, um, but the rate, the, the amount that they're reducing them by is very small, uh, relatively. Um, I think that there's a big problem in the Chinese property market and there's a there's a massive overhang of empty properties and um, incomplete properties and uh, and the extent of debt by property companies is massive um, there may be a need just to have a clear out of some of these companies and have a, a whole load of bankruptcies but i don't think China is willing to allow that to happen um, Clearly, uh, exports continue of manufactured goods, so that's a positive uh, issue. But uh, but uh, as far as the sort of stimulus is concerned, it's, it's, it's not going to be any one thing.
0: It'll be a combination of factors, I'm sure. You know, as, as Stuart said, they, they are trying a variety of things. It's been uh, too small at the moment, too piecemeal, but the problem is, uh, because you've got this big infrastructure uh, sector in China, because you've got this big property sector in China, what tends to happen is if you do have more money going in the economy, it goes straight into real estate because that's what people are comfortable with. I think perhaps China um, needs to focus maybe on a, a more industrial policy. I mean, it's clearly going to have to tool up in terms of semiconductors and, and these kind of uh, proto uh, military um, product uses. Um, and I think that they're probably going to have to uh, put some investment into that as opposed to investment just into airports and railways and things like that, which has been the, um, uh, the thing until now. But it is difficult. They're going to have to be clever about it. But again, I go back to the fact I think the average consumer needs to build confidence again in China. Um, and a lot of that maybe is going to be cultural That the Chinese are going to have to uh, put that through maybe reducing taxes, this kind of thing, to try and get the grassroots to start spending again.
1: You heard there Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, Stuart Oldcroft, Asian fund management industry consultant, and over in the US, our economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Tomorrow, we have a special one-hour podcast. In the first half an hour, reviewing the latest business and financial market headlines with me, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Then in the second half of the show, I'm joined by John Greenwood, Chief Economist at International Monetary Monitor, who is known as the father of the Hong Kong dollar peg after an article he wrote in 1983 provided the basis for the government's policy to link the local currency to the US dollar. He still sits on the HKMA Currency Board Subcommittee, which monitors and reports on the linked exchange rate system that pegs the Hong Kong dollar against the US dollar between a range of 7.75 to 7.85. He'll be with me tomorrow to discuss Hong Kong's currency board system and also to give us his thoughts on some aspects of the global economy and monetary policy. So please do join me tomorrow. Money Talk.